Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask various guests to reveal the five things from their life they treasure so much that they would like to preserve them in a time capsule. Well, in fact, four things they cherish, and one that they regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor Shane Ritchie, who is best known for his portrayal of Alfie Moon in EastEnders, but his career has leapt all over the place. Starting out as a blue coat at Pontins Holiday Camp on the Isle of Wight, he's been a stalwart of the Panto world, hosted a number of primetime quiz shows like Win, Lose or Draw and Lucky Numbers, starred in the West End in shows like Everybody's Talking About Jamie, Boogie Nights and Grease, hosted The One Show, had a number two hit with the Children in Need single I'm Your Man, a cover of the song by Wham!, released a country album, and played a rat in the animated movie Flushed Away. He's also appeared in loads of TV shows, such as Benidorm, Night and Day, Minder, Skins, and, most recently, as part of the 20th series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Shane spoke to me on Zoom during lockdown, and if anyone can lift your mood, it is, as you're about to find out, Shane Ritchie. I hope you enjoy it. Shane, what's your first item? Oh, Michael, my first item. I mean, th- those that have known me uh, a long time will know my love for old um, vintage TV film memorabilia toys. And the reason why I kind of went over the top collecting um, toys, certainly in the last 20 years, is a, a memory that was haunt me for years. And it was the first time, uh, growing up in a women's refuge, um, there was a lot of children and my mum and my dad was occasionally was there and sometimes he was and would go missing but my dad used to run a lot of clubs in London so my introduction to working men's clubs was at the age of eight collecting um, glasses and getting up and calling bingo and doing the raffle and my dad like, used to run a thing called the loan club <laughs> which was basically an illegal uh, lending of money but anyway <laughs> and I, I remember Planet of the Apes it's strange when I mention this, it pricks people's conscience about um, TV-related toys. And, you know, like Star Wars toys that are some of the biggest collecting items in the world now. Yeah. But the very first ones were Planet of the Apes. And when the TV series came out, I remember we had a television that would share in the house. And there was a lot of women that would come and stay for three or four days. So my mum would put them up. We had this big house that we lived in and children would come and go. But we had a big television that was kindly given us was by the council. And one of the first TV shows I saw was Planet Games. And one of these kids turned up at this big house with one of the figures, which I'm holding, I'm going to hold in my hand right now. <laughs> it's this guy here. Oh, yeah. This is Galen from Planet Games. And I remember watching the TV show and seeing that this kid 
had this in his hand and I said, could I play with it? And I played with it all day, every day. And I was only young. But then I was given an action man. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Because I knew lots of other children had action man and it just bonded me with other children. And then my brother broke him. He took his bloody leg off. <laughs> and my mum said to me, don't worry, when you're older, you can buy as many toys as you want. And I remember making my first big paycheck. This was like in the, must have been in the 90s, where <laughs> I made a lot of money. And this is way before eBay, way before going online. I ended up going to toy fairs and buying everything, Mike. I bought everything that was related to Planet of the Apes. And I don't know why. I, you know, I've since sat down with psychiatrists over the years and, you know, when I went through divorce or, you know, my drink problems. And I think it was just my way of sticking two fingers up and going, yeah, my mum was right. I can buy everything now. And kids that lived in the area would show off their toys. And there's a part of me now that buys these toys. And friends of mine that come around the house and it's become like a bit of a museum. And so one of my earliest memories, uh, and uh, looking at my toys now, and of course it's since gone on to Jerry Anderson and Marvel. So I surround myself and, and the colours, the look, and they remind me of, of, of a happy childhood. I mean, I had a great time. You know, we couldn't afford to buy a skateboard, so uh, I built one. Um, everyone at the time got a chopper bike. I remember building my own chopper bike. And funny enough, only about two years ago, I bought a chopper bike, which is on my wall in my garage. And I, I look at the chopper bike and I go, oh, my God, I finally got one. I never had one when I was 10 or 11. So things like that, uh, you know, they remind me of a happy time. Albeit, I got them through anger. When I think about it, I was angry that I couldn't have them as a child. Uh, you know, and I never put pressure on my mum to get them. But she always said, don't worry, when you're old enough, if you can afford it, you go and buy yourself some. And I did. Do you think you fell in love with them because, you know, it, this was a safe thing or this was a, an escape thing? So when you were in the, that refuge, this comes on the telly and you go, yeah, this is another world, another planet. Yeah, and, it, and if you saw the adverts, like same with Action Man, even now you, you watch, you know, toy adverts, they're children playing with toys, which said to me, why, why them children got them toys and I haven't? Why, why can they afford them and I can't? Yeah. I never felt like, I, I was, did I feel like I was missing out? Yeah, but I never, I was never bitter about it because I always knew, oh, one day I'll have that. It's, for me, it's always, you know, oh, one day, don't worry, I'll have that one day. And, and I, th I think I spent my whole career going, you know, whether I was like musical theatre, the amount of times I went for auditions, oh, one day I'll get to do that. Or, you know, as a job in actor, one day I'll get that job. Uh, and of course it came, you know, the big job was Alfie Moon. And I suppose the, the toys were the same. It was like I was never in a rush to get them, but when I knew I'd get them, I would. And now they're so easy to get hold of. You know, with the uh, with internet, I can just tap one button and go, "Oh, all right, okay, how much is that one?" Eh, well, maybe I'll barter for it. But I still, even now to this day, I still when I'm on, when I've been on tour, I'll find out the city or the town I'm in, and find out if they've got old vintage toy shops. I go to antique toy stores, and I become friends with all these people around the country, and even some in the states now. I keep in touch with, and yeah. we buy, swap, and sell. And, I, I, you know, I've still gone there. And, and something might only cost £15 or $20. And I go, oh, let me barter for that. But the big, how about this, though? This is the <laughs> worst on. thing i ever done. So I went, this may be something I might, may never want to see again. But as I'm sitting talking to you now, Mark, I'm in my office looking at it right now. So I went through a divorce. And I was on my own for a while. For about 18 months, I was on my own. And I lived in this big, big house that I couldn't afford to keep up. So I ended up bringing in mates of mine, that musicians, of all people. Anyway, mom, a couple of my mates who'd been on tour with Robbie, uh, where, where, where Elton John, they all come and stay. For some reason, at my house become a sanctuary. It was known as the manor. It had eight bedrooms. It was on 10 acres of land. Like I said, couldn't afford it. But my ego got the better of me, and I bought it when I did the soap powder ad, which I will talk about later. Anyway... <laughs> And I was heavily drinking. I was going through a divorce. All, all my own doing. I don't blame anybody except myself. And for some reason, I saw the Planet of the Apes wagon. The actual wagon they used in the 1968 film where they throw Charlton Heston into it was for sale. Mark, I couldn't believe it. 
I just went, oh my God, the wagon. Now, bearing in mind, I'm going through a divorce. I've got very little money. So I thought, can I afford to get this? Can I? So I start bidding for this wagon, which is in Southern California, outside the front of someone's house. They've got all the legit papers. I know it's the actual wagon. They threw chocolates. Now, what Now, how? What better toy to have? Never mind the six-inch figures. This is the actual bloody wagon they threw Charlton Heston into. So I'm getting on the Jack Daniels. Um, this, is, this is over a weekend. I'm sitting there. I'm not going to sleep. I might be using other substances. I don't know. I can't remember. But anyway, I'm staying awake. And I'm now bartering. I'm going, well, how much? It starts off at three grand. Oh, I'll go 3,200. Oh, someone's gone fourth. Oh, there's someone in Australia wants it. No, forget that. Anyway, cut a long story short. I eventually get it for eight thousand pounds. Now this is in nineteen ninety nine, I think it was, or two thousand. Wow! So now, forget that. Now I've got to get it across America, ship it to the UK. So my mate who's staying with me, who's in Elton John's band, and he goes, "I think Elton might be." <laughs> <laughs> I think Elton might be able to help. I said, "What do you mean, Elton might be able to help me?" He said, "Well, he's got this company called Rocket." And it was, that was his, I think that was his record company. It's a freight company. It's got everything's called Rocket. That was Elton John's. So he gets in touch with someone through Elton John's company. And they say, oh, yeah, we can get it with Rocket Freight. We need to drive it across America from California, I think, to North Carolina, ship it to Felixstowe, Felixstowe to my house. How much is that going to cost me? 12 grand. <laughs> in the end, I pay 20K. This is how oh pathetic. And drunk and stupid and naive, and my ego got the better of me. I shipped over this Planet of the Apes wagon from Southern California to Denham in Bucks, costing me 20 grand. The thing is now, in my front garden, it just looks like an old skip now. Because obviously I couldn't put it in the house. So there's me thinking I was going to put it on this big marble plinth. It was going to be for the whole world to see. It's now rotten in my front garden. It stinks of fox crap. <laughs> so that one thing I'll probably just want to bury forever. That when I look at that, that reminds me of a bad time I went through emotionally, personally, professionally. I look at it, but then it when I do look at it, it reminds me of what an idiot and dickhead I was back in the day. So I'm constantly reminded because it's in my front garden. I'm looking at it right now as we speak. Yeah, thanks <laughs> for that, Charlton Esmond. <laughs> I think for twenty grand you could have bought Charlton Esmond. <laughs> He could have come over and stayed with me, along with a load of out-of-work musicians. Oh, <laughs> mate. Oh. All right, so that's two items you've managed okay. to get. Yeah. yeah, you've got Galen, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Galen. Yeah, the little thing. Uh, yeah. Was that Roddy McDowell's? Yeah, character? Roddy McDowell. He made, um, um, uh, he did, the, the, obviously, the movies, and then he did the TV series, which I think they only recorded 10 or 12 episodes. And like anything, you know, TV was changing back in the mid-70s, certainly in America. Um, funny enough, Eric Green, who's a, a writer, wrote a wonderful book about the ceases of Planet of the Apes. And when Pierre Bull, uh, who wrote the original piece, La Planet de Songe, he, he wrote Bridge Over the River Quiet. And he wrote it, uh, I think it was in a, he, he actually served in the, in the French military. He was a, uh, and then helped build the bridge. I think he was a prisoner of war out there. And when he wrote uh, Planet de Songe, he actually wrote it about racism. And if you look at old, if any of you people listen to this, if you go, I think you can actually see them online. There's old black and white stills of the making of the movie. Uh, and when they used to break for lunch break, Charlton Heston would go sit with some of the actors who were not apes. And you'd find all the apes, the gorillas that were in prosthetics all sat together. The chimps sat together. The orangutans sat together. And the humans sat together and it's an incredible black and white print that i've got and it just shows where you will go and sit because you feel comfortable and these prosthetics bore out almost like the worst thing people that that inept racism that uh certainly back in the 60s in uh middle america that was happening Mm. when they were making that movie and when pierre bull wrote the book that's what he was writing about yeah I heard that um, the same thing happened in the making of the Coldit series. The prisoners would never have lunch with the German guards. And they were all actors. 
all actors, all knew each other, all spoke, you know, most of the German guards were putting on an accent. So at lunch, they would speak with an English accent. They never sat with You had that uniform. Isn't it funny? And that, that's why we judge a book by its cover. Yeah. We really do. Whether we like it or not, sometimes we don't know we're doing it, yet we do. No. Yeah, it's really clear, isn't it? I think in the in the recent films of uh, Planet of the Apes, that was an element that was quite clear. I think that racism they brought that back, didn't they? Of course, it was. Yeah, with the with the with the apes, the hierarchy with the orangutans. Then you had the workers uh, being the gorillas, and then you had the chimpanzees being almost like student like, yeah. um, and the, you know, the quite liberal in their thinking. And then you had the humans, which were the animals. Mm. Uh, you know, I grew up in Holsden. Uh, and uh, where I went to school, uh, I didn't realise at the time, but there was 33 in my class, three of us were white. And it wasn't until it was pointed out to me by John Craven's news round about prejudice amongst, oh, and I never noticed it, you know. I, I never, my first girlfriend was a, a black girl called Lorraine. And it was only pointed out by my dad, who was quite racist. He was a typical cliche paddy who run working men's club. And I had no idea. Kids don't notice it unless you tell them. Exactly. So you were, there were three white boys in your class? Yeah, me, Jason and Diane. Uh, the rest were made up of uh, Pakistani, Indian and second generation, first generation uh, Caribbean. Africa. You know, I'm, my music, listening to the music for me, was reggae. And then when two-tone came in, my God, this is black music being sung by white people. I was listening to this music in the mid-70s you know, Trojan and reggae, and all of a sudden these white boys are singing reggae music. And when I first heard the specials and Madness and bands like The Beat, I was going, and UB40, I was going, yeah, well, why is everyone getting so excited about this? In Holston, I was listening to this all the time. Um, yeah, no, interesting times, really interesting. Yeah. So we're going to put Galen, and we're going to put your ridiculous wagon. That's going into the time capsule. One to remind you of the folly of uh, weekends on the Jack Daniels. Yeah. And, and, w- and one to remind you of, uh, of a happy childhood. So what's your next item? My next one is, now for a long time, I kind of frowned upon it. I, I, I was never embarrassed about it, but it was something I didn't really want to talk about because it didn't seem cool. And in my 30s and certainly my early 40s, you know, as a performer, as an actor, you know, I, I was looking for jobs all the time. And I used to play this down. I, and for a long time, I never denied it because it was always out there. And that was working at a holiday camp. Okay. It carried a stigma, which I suppose it still carries to this day, you know, the butlin's red coat, the cheesy grin, the smile and all that. And how it came about for me, I was an actor. I, I'd worked with a, a professional um, theatre company called the Moonshine Theatre Company, which was a touring theatre company, which I was part of. I started at the age of 14 and carried on, I think, to the age of 16, 17. And even when I was going to school, they had a relationship with my school. They had an understanding. I would go to school, do the register, and then run down to the theatre. The theatre would then ring the school and say, he's arrived here safely. I was doing that from the age of 13, 14. So my school understood. They knew I didn't want to be there. You never get away with that now. But they knew I wanted to be an actor. So I did. And I, and I taught TIE, theatre and education. We did schools. We went out into the suburbs, did plays in schools and parks. I did Class Enemy, uh, The Trials of King Arthur. I did loads of these little plays. Loved it. No, that's, I was getting my equity through that. And then in 1980, I was promised a job. I, I was going to go to the National Youth Theatre. Mm-hmm. And then I remember buying the stage newspaper. And as a child, we used to go to Pontins holiday camps. And I loved it. I loved it for two weeks of the year. You know, my mum and my dad would, would forget about everything. We'd save up all year to either go to the Isle of Wight or down to the South Coast, wherever these camps were. And I and I loved it. I, I loved what these blue coats did. These blue coats were heroes to me. Because back then, to be a blue coat, you had to sing, dance. Uh, there were a lot of actors who were out of work and they would do sketch shows. And, of course, you'd host a bingo. You'd do Donkey Derby, Nobbly Knees. You, know, you certainly won't get away with now. But then they were the staple diet of camps. And I loved it as a child. For me, they were, they did everything. They were the ultimate entertainers. And so I looked, and I should have been at school in 1980. That was going to be my last year at school. But they were going to release me to go and do National Youth Theatre. So I saw this audition come up. Pontins Blue Coats needed for summer season 1980. Now, bear in mind, you've got to be 18 to be a blue coat. Mm. I saw this in February of 1980. I was 15, uh, still at school. So I went and auditioned thinking, no, I just wanted to go along and audition. That's all. So I kind of 
I, I remember on my way to school having a bag of clothes, put getting changed on the bus to Regent Street and putting on a nice smart pair of trousers, slick my hair back, try to look a bit older than 15. And because I was quite tall and I was a little bit old for my age, I thought I'd get away with this. So I went and auditioned at the Pontius Head Office, which was on the corner of Oxford Street and Regent Street. In the basement, they had a little stage area, blah, blah. Got up, auditioned, cut a long story short, did a great audition. Four weeks later, I get offered the job at Ponson's to become a sports organiser. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never held a tennis racket in my life, but I was <laughs> going to be a sports organiser. And I, th I thought, my God, but you've got to be 18. And I'd forged my medical certificate then to get the audition. So, because you know, I didn't have a passport. And then you had a paper. Do you remember the paper medical So yeah. I was born in 64, so I managed to change the four to a two, which looked like I was going to be 18 in March. Anyway, then the National Youth Theatre was ringing up and they were saying, oh, we're not going to be starting until July. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll go and do the National Youth Theatre the following year. Or maybe I'll just go to Pontins because this was going to be starting end of April till September. Wow, how much am I going to earn a week? Something like 22 pounds or something. Oh, my God. So I spoke to my mum about it. And she went, but Shane, you, you, my mum, if you ever met me more, she's a lovely Dublin lady. What about your fucking exams? I said, mum, don't worry about exams. I'll try and come back for them. <laughs> so I was then, I went to Pontins. I made, it was a sliding doors moment where I went to Pontins and I was given a blue coat. And you know what? I've still got that blue coat to this day. Obviously, it doesn't fit me. But my God, it was one of the proudest moments of my life. I start at the end of April. You go for a training weekend. You learn to foxtrot. Uh, you learn how to plug in a microphone. You learn how to connect a cool binger. I knew how to call binger because I'm working at my dad's club. So I knew yeah. my way around an audience. And from that moment, in 1980, I went to work on a holiday camp. And it was like my whole life changed. I was introduced to a, a whole life. Bearing in mind, they thought I was 18. And I should have been doing my school exams. I didn't do them. And they were asking where I was. My mum said she didn't know where I was. And by then, you know, you, 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 we didn't have a phone then, so we had to go and use the phone in my dad's club. And they kind of, the school gave up. They didn't know where I was. I was leaving anyway. And for all intent and purpose, I think they thought I was at the National Youth Theatre following my career as an actor. And there I was calling Donkey Derby, cleaning up Donkey Poo, doing Miss Pontins. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a knockout introducing these one. I mean, at the time I met people like Gary Wilmot. Jimmy Cricket was just coming through on the circuit all these wonderful comics I'd see perform. And then I managed to get a little 10-minute act of my own. But I ended up doing the Black and White Minstrel Show in 1980 because it was a show that was still on television. And I yeah. remember them giving me boot polish and said, we need you to black up. And I'm going, what? You, what? you want me to what? You want? And I remember just uh, nearly getting fired for going, I, don't, I didn't understand you. Want to? Oh, yeah, I'm a mate, and to this day I say I will not do this. And I think I'm reluctantly. I, I sat on this guy's lap while he was singing "Climb Up on My New Sunny Boy," thinking I'm going to knock you out in a minute, sunshine. Um, but I had the best time, mate. And I ended up doing like three or four seasons, and then sort of making my way uh, as an actor and doing the odd little TV jobs, and then kind of got myself a little. 15, 20 minute act, then I got a 40 minute stand up, and then ended up becoming a, co a comedian purely by accident because I was out of work as an actor. Yeah. And then in the 80s, that took me to shows like Seaside Special, Summertime, the Les Dennis Laughter Show, Freddie Starr, working with Cannon the Boy, and all these artists. But all the time, I would go and see people like um, Rick Mail and Aid Edmonds, and that's when you started doing your thing. Yeah. And I remember you being part of that great. Uh, sketch company, you know, that you guys were doing at the comedy store. And I wanted so badly to be a part of that, but being drawn to variety and the big shows, which, you know, I, I, even then I'd always say, do I want to go and do a little gig at the comedy store where a couple of hundred people might see me, not knowing that's where the future was, or do I go and do Summertime Special or Live from the Palladium where 16 million people are watching? But yeah. we all knew that was slowly coming to an end and it was the guys like you that were coming through so i opted because it's all i knew for your summertime special seaside specials but all the time going nah this is not where i belong this is not where i belong but being a blue coat opened my eyes to the business and i've always said now and i was i was always in denial for a long time but i'm first and foremost an entertainer mm. the umbrella is the entertainer underneath that yeah am i an actor i'm a trained actor do i do stand-up yeah do i sing dance do musical theater but first and foremost if you're an actor, a singer, a dancer, a poet, or you're an entertainer. You are first and foremost 
and entertain. And I've always believed that. And my blue coat that hangs up in my wardrobe, sometimes if I get down, reminds me, that's who you are. I often think, because as a boy, I went to holiday camps all mm-hmm. the time. We always went to holiday camps, and I love the entertainers. And I would have loved to have been a holiday camp entertainer. But why didn't you? Well, because I, I went down the route that you've avoided, which is that yeah. I went down the route of taking exams and then going to university. And so I got into it through university comedy. But you were part of where Rick Mann and Aid Edmondson and these guys were coming through, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, we, we we did the the comic strip and all sorts of things like that. So we did. Yeah, but it's it's a funny thing. I I still hanker after that. I think that I would have loved to have done it. Really, you know, because uh, yeah, I remember you telling me once about that sensation of being on all the time, and I really like that thing. In a, in a way, in life, I'm quite happy to do that as well. I don't mind people coming up to me in the street. I like it. Yeah, I, I've always said, well, I mean, I'm constantly being asked when I have my picture taken, someone will always say to me, oh, you must get fed up of this. And I don't, and if I'm being really honest, I don't know what they mean because I've, I can't remember a time, Mike, when I've never been asked for my picture. Because when I went to the holiday camp at 15, those that have been at holiday camps, you know, when you're a blue coat, red coat, green coat, for them people coming away even for a week or two weeks, while they're there, you are their entertainment. So every Friday night, everyone want a picture taken with you. Wherever you are, they want your attention. Oh, there's Shane of Luca. Oh, him have a picture taken. Da, 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 da. And like I think I told you this, I had a chalet at Ponsons when I was 16. And if I wanted to get away from it, I'd go back to the chalet. And it was a tiny little room with a bed and a sink. It's all you had. Um, and I would lay in the bed and shut the door. And I was away from the business. I was away from the business. And as soon as I stepped out that door, you become public. I've always believed you're public property. And like I said to you, the only difference, you know what, 40 odd years later is I've got a nice chalet now. (laughs) The day I worry is when I stop being asked for a picture. Yeah. That's when I worry. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't, when people do ask me about, do I ever think about getting bothered about it? I don't, I honestly, hand on my heart, I can't remember a time when I've not been asked. So I don't know quite what they mean. No. And and I've seen you do it. Oh, you've been there, haven't you? I've watched you do it in the middle of Benidorm. You know, we were filming Benidorm yeah. together and we were staying in a hotel and I thought that you would choose to go somewhere quiet. No, let's go down by the pool. Yeah. And we sat there with every and all day long people kept coming up and saying i'm sorry shane you know you couldn't just and you were going yeah 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 of course yeah you grabbing people's phone phoning people up you didn't mind at all i've never seen anybody give themselves so much to the public as you really well, mate, I, I, I believe it's because of the general public we know we all have a career whether you're like i say a singer a dancer an actor well i don't you know you, who, who are you doing it to i i, I it's, it's difficult to explain i don't know who you're doing it to who are you trying to appeal to there was a time i, I, I always said i want to try and appeal to my peers i don't care about them anymore my it's, it's the general public you know, when I do it, when I, you know, EastEnders, okay, a great big part of my life. Who are we playing to? Who are we playing to? The general public. So when I step out of that and they want to come up and they want to call me after you, I don't mind at all, and they want a picture, of course. Of course you can. I owe it to the general public. I've always believed it. I owe my career. And the reason why I've got a nice chalet is because the general public. That's not to say sometimes it ain't a ball ache. <laughs> <laughs> with a family and I'm having dinner and I can see someone with their camera surreptitiously just turning their camera around and trying to film me and I've got a bit of broccoli in the corner of my mouth and then and I've called it out I've gone listen guys let me finish my dinner and I'll happy have a picture taken with it and it's fine there's some famous people I know that step out and they refuse to have a picture taken and I don't get it I don't get it. But anyway, that's just me though, mate. Well, the blue coat. We're going to take your precious blue coat and we're going to put it in the time capsule to remind you of those, those happy days. So what's next? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. Very important things for podcast makers. So bear with us. We'll be back in a moment. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Okay, let's get back to Shane Ritchie and find out what else he would like to put into his time capsule. One of the other highlights was when I got the part in Greece, the musical. Uh, that was a real turning point for me. Uh, I did a big show when Sky was first launched. Uh, Derek Jameson, he was given a chat show on the early days of Sky. And I, was, I got asked, would I come and do the warm-ups? Because I was doing a lot of warm-ups at the time then for Wogan and uh, Catchphrase and Noel's House Party. And I got asked to be the warm-up coming. And it was filmed at the old Windmill Theatre, which became Paramount City. They turned it into a stand-up and it was a little TV stroke theatre. And Derek Jameson, five nights a week, would record the show at six o'clock and the show would go out that night at 10 o'clock. Anyway, I was the warm-up comic. My job was to go out in the streets and try and invite people in because no one knew about Sky then. They certainly weren't going to come and sit and watch in, in a hot theatre and watch a chat show with someone they A, they didn't know or B, didn't like Derek Jameson. But anyway, after a few months, Annabelle Jarns was the co-host at the time and uh, we had a wonderful relationship. Anyway, I think she finally called it a day. And then Derek said, how about that? How about we go to show which you'll come and be the co-host for a while till we find someone better. <laughs> so I went and become the co-host for a week. And you'll never guess who become the warm-up. Who? Rob Bryden become the warm-up comic. He'd come down from Wales. I think he just finished university, trying to make his way around the circuit in London. And he become the warm-up. So then I become the co-host. Now, I knew a lot of the comics in London. I said, why don't we start having a little slot where comics can come and do little three minutes? So at that point, we managed to get people like Bob Mills, Mickey Hutton, Eddie Izzard, uh, I think Paul Merton come and did a bit. My poem was going, and all these comics that from the London show would come on. And then from that, I was on the show for about nine months. And then I started building up my, my career once again in television. I don't, how, how we're digressing here from Greece? It will come together, mate, I promise you. <laughs> uh, and then I did a children's show called Run the Risk. And it was a, a little insert part of going live. And then I ended up doing something called Win, Lose or Draw, which I took over from Danny Baker. This was in 92. And, and I just, I felt like I was going around in circles. I was just becoming a, another non-runner. I was doing, you know, the stand-up was all right, not going great. I ended up doing stand-up at Butlins, supporting, funny enough, little and large. And it just, my heart wasn't in it. And I was losing faith in television and what my children's presenting now. When Lose or Draw was doing great, but it was 9.25. I'd already had a big show on BBC One called Caught in the Act, which got 12 million views. But Jim Moyer, who was head of uh, control of BBC, said, oh, he's, he's, he sounds too like, like an oik. So they got rid of him. Points of View did this whole thing about my accent, about how people like me shouldn't have an accent on Prime. Anyway, <laughs> I put up with that. That was in 91, 92. A show that I was doing was getting 12 million viewers absolutely slagging uh, Anyway, but anyway, I soon got over that. Um, and then I'd, I'd loved musical theatre for a long time. And David Ian, who'd become a friend of mine, him and Paul Nicholas had formed a company. And his first project, he said, we've managed to get the rights to Greece. Now, that doesn't mean much now because the show's been done to death. But back in 19, end of 92, no one had ever, in the, the worldwide, Robert Stigwood, had never given the film rights away. So they'd managed to do a deal with Robert Stigwood and they said, oh, we're going to do the movie version of Greece. And I was like, oh, David, you've got to let me be in that. And he went, oh, what are you talking You're a TV presenter. You, get musical. you don't do musical theatre. I said, no, but I will, I will learn. 
I went to Pineapple and I learned to dance. When I say I learned to dance, I learned to, to count, step, step or kick. Not that we're going to do much tap in Greece, but I learned to tap and just jazz dance, just to get in. I knew what time I knew what to do at the audition. Anyway, Arlene Phillips is choreographing this. So I go along to audition. And I knew they were just doing me a favour. David Ian said, oh, listen, get Shane in. Yeah, you'll recognise him. He does children's TV. And they're all the producers like, oh, he's got are we going down that route? Children's TV presenters in a musical? And I'm like, well, hold on, guys. Is this how I'm going to be known now for the rest of my career? Anyway, I auditioned and I lied. I lied to them that I was a trained dancer and that I was a trained singer. <laughs> now, I, it ain't that difficult to sing rock and roll, Mike. You know, if this was Phantom of the Opera or Lemmy's, they may have found me out. <laughs> but this was rock and roll. So I put my hair in a quiff. Turned up and I, and I, because I'd done stand up, I did the best audition. Now, there was no way I was going to get Danny Zuko because they'd already said Craig McLaughlin. I know you're saying who, but then he was Henry from Neighbours. So, what other parts were there? I know, Kanicki. He sings Grease Lightning in the, in the movie. So, I auditioned and they went, nah. Well, what do you mean, though? That was a great audition. And Robert Stigwood, who had no idea who I was, went, mate. And he was a real big, jolly, big, fat Australian. He's a megalomaniac, multi-millionaire who made Saturday Night Fever. He used to manage the Bee Gees. He said, there was that young man who'd just come up and made us laugh. He was a very funny man. He'd be great knicky. And they were going, no, 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 you don't want him. That's Shane Richie. You don't want him. He said, no, no, I'm telling you. He'd be a wonderful knicky. Anyway, mate, I went from earning a lot of money from doing stand-up and doing TV shows, and I'd become part of the also ran. So I got the job as Kinnicky, which was fantastic. But I think I was, I mean, it was a lot of money still back then. I think it was about £680 a week. But I'd gone from earning thousands. And I turned my back on a TV series for the BBC. I was supposed to do a tour, a stand-up tour, turn my back. Because I knew the right decision would be a change of direction to go into musical theatre. So I was there for about 10 months. While I was doing that, they let me out to do win, lose, or draw. And I did win, lose, which become a Big success. Yeah. I was at 925, five days a week. Now, bear in mind, Craig McLaughlin wasn't on television. And then I did a show called Lucky Numbers, which was a bingo show. Now, the, the producers thought, hold on a second. We're going to let Shane out here because we know this could help the box office. Now, Lucky Numbers went out and become the biggest show on television. Friday nights, I think 7 o'clock, where people, it's the first interactive game show on television where people will buy, I think it was The Sun or The Daily Mirror, you could play along at home while I was doing this game show. Now, all of a sudden, people are coming to see me. And, oh, is that bloke who does lucky numbers? Is he still in the musical Greece? Bear in mind, my name wasn't outside the theatre. So the box office started. Now, but Craig McLaughlin was bored now. He'd done 10 months. He was supposed to do a year, but he was offered another job in Australia. And they let him out to do it. So he started to audition for Greece. Okay? They brought in some other Australian actors. I think at one point, Jason Donovan was about to was about to come out of Joseph. He was going to audition. I think Philip Schofield, all these big stars. Bear in mind, my career on TV was on the rise. Win, lose, or draw was on. Then I got the dazzled, which kind of nearly killed it. But <laughs> what, what happened was between, even when I wasn't on Lucky Numbers, in the ad break was me. So in 94, I was on telly constantly, all the time. Bang, bang, bang. They asked me to audition. I said, no. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. Take Craig McLaughlin off for the weekend. Give him a paid holiday. Let me go and do a Friday night and two shows, Matinee. They went, oh, we're not sure. I went, well, that's the only way I want to audition. So they said, okay. Now, I had a great in with, I think, the Sun newspaper at the time, or the Mirror, because they were sponsoring the show. They run a piece in the newspaper saying, would you like to go and see Shane Ritchie live in Greece, the music? Well, the box office, mate went through the roof. <laughs> I went on for them three shows and it was incredible. From the moment I walked on stage, it was like a rock concert. There were screams. And about mate, I was still in my 30s. I had a six-pack and a dyed black hair and I had a quiff. I, anything I did to look like Elvis or John Travolta, I did. And it worked. So then they came back and they offered me the job. And I said, no. <laughs> and, and my manager said, he will do it but we want this in the contract. We want, and I won't go into detail, mate, but suffice to say, I bought the big house and I've still got my Danny Zuko jacket signed by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John. Wow. 
me, that was a game changer. It was, I mean, it, it opened a lot of doors. And I, I'm, sadly, it ended my marriage. But as far as putting me back on the map, and for a while I had my Saturday night show, I was Danny Zuko in Greece, doing the, the soap powder. Ad. I used to do a joke, amount of money they'd pay me to uh, wash that stuff. I'd have sniffed the shit. But anyway, that was a gag I used to do. Anyway. <laughs> See, what I think is brilliant about that story is that you knew from your going right back to those days of being a holiday camp entertainer that you knew that if they let you get in front of an audience, you'd get it. Yeah, that was all that's all it was about, mate. You put me in, mate. I've lost, and I'm like most actors, I've gone into a room and I remember auditioning for Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick, and getting all the way down to one of the I think it was about four or five leads playing a young GI and they wanted to shave my hair. And I went, no, that's it. Forget it. And I walked out. <laughs> but I mean, in, in, in all the auditions I've done, I, I, I don't do great in auditions. I really don't. Uh, but no, that was one prime example. I said, yeah, I'll audition, but let me get in front of 2000 people. And it worked in my favor. Cause I knew, I know how to work an audience. Yeah. I, I, you know, that comes from working on holiday camps. Yeah. So you've got a, a house full of memorabilia. I mean, that jacket to you is precious, but also how much would people pay for that jacket? And it was such a thrill meeting him. And when Olivia Newton John comes to see the show, oh God, we were so excited. But, you know, Greece has now become, it tours every year uh, and it does well, but people don't realise how big it was when it opened in 93. We was on top of the pops. It, it was making news worldwide. Up until that point, you could only do the original musical of Greece. You never had songs like um, Greece is the Word. Uh, it never had songs like You're the One That I Want. It didn't have Sandy. It didn't have Hopelessly Devoted to You. All the songs that were in the charts, mm. they weren't in the stage show. And it wasn't until Robert Stigwood gave it to him and said, go on, off you go, go and do it. Fantastic. Well, all right, we're going to put that fabulous Danny Zuko jacket into the time capsule. So what's next? What's <coughs> oh, on my wall? I remember um, back in, when did I start? 2002, uh, my manager had retired. Uh, I just met Christy. I had no money. One of my sons was living with me. I just lost three quarters of a million in an investment in a movie which I was producing with Jolie Richardson. I had nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And had to borrow the money up front just to pay bills. And then I changed management. And this guy I'm with now said to me, you know what? Have you ever thought about EastEnders? Of course, every actor, you know, wanted to be in a big show, uh, like EastEnders, Corey Emmerdale in their big shows. And I just thought, oh, we've another manager full of BS. And he says, listen, I'll tell you what, he said, I can only phone you. Let me see what I can do. Meanwhile, the Bill were interested in me playing a small part in a spin-off called Burnside. Uh, the Dazad was still dragging me down. When I, I turned up sometimes at auditions and people go, oh, there's that Pratt who does the Dazad. And I'd hear him on the other side of the door uh, and I'd go and I'd just end up leaving. Um, anyway, so my manager said, listen, I, I can't promise you EastEnders, but I know them well enough that they'll audition. I went, okay, so I'll go and do it. And I turned up and a lovely lady called Julia Cramps, who's since become a good friend of mine, she's casting director there. And there was a lady at the time called Louise Berridge and Tony Jordan, who was one of the, the script editor, the main writers there, who created the Slaters, the Mitchells, the big story, like he was the one who wrote, who shot Phil, he was there from the beginning, blah, blah, blah. So I went along and uh, I did all right. Did all right. And uh, funny enough, I went along to audition for a part for a fireman who it was, it was a three month contract. They wanted the fireman, cheeky cockney, six foot, blue eyes, blah, blah. I went along and I, and I remember leaving Mike, walking along, thinking, I've got this. I, and I've got this. I, I, I've done the audition in the Queen Vic. The Tisha's there, all these actors I know. Uh, <laughs> and I've gone, Shane, good to see you. Oh, mate, you've got this. This is yours. They love you. By the time I got to the main gate, Elstree, my phone got, my manager went, no, nah, they didn't like you. I went, I'll oh, screw it. He said, but the bill are interested. And I went, really? They went, yeah. He said, do you want to audition? I said, I'll go and have a meeting about it. I was getting so down about doing television now. I just felt like it was, my manager was just sending me along just to save face. Meanwhile, EastEnders got back in touch and said, listen, we're thinking of putting this new family together. We don't know much about them yet, but we'd love Shane to come back and do some improv. So I'm in a room with all these actors. So we start doing this improv and they say to me, uh, Shane, we want you to play this guy who's got a young brother 
and he looks after him, and maybe the nan as well. Okay, so I'm doing some improv. Looking, oh, I think this is going well. So they keep me behind, and they bring in some other young actors to play my brother, and they're still keeping me behind. Then they bring in some more elderly ladies to play my grand. And this goes over over a period of weeks, this does. And I'm thinking, oh, am I there just to help the casting, which we've done before as actors. And while I'm sitting there, Tony Jordan, he's sitting there in his cowboy boots, Larry's shirt, jeans and a big buckle, and a long leather coat. And I'm going, oh, I like that look, Tony. He said, oh, thanks, mate. Now, don't forget, he went on to write Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes and Death in Paradise. So this guy knows what he's talking about. Anyway, I go on holiday. Got no money. We go and stay. Uh, we rent this little apartment, me, Christian, and mum and dad and the sister. And I think it was New York or something like that. We get a cheap bucket flight. Uh, I've got no work. The phone goes. And I've actually got this on video, Mike, because my wife was filming me at the time and I was running around the swimming pool doing silly dives. The phone goes and she goes, Oh, it's Phil, your manager. So I pick up the phone and he goes, Right, I want you to listen and you don't talk because no one can know this. And she's still filming me. And I'm listening. And Christy's, my missus, going, is everything okay? And I'm going, yeah, it's fine. I'm just listening. And he tells me down the phone, EastEnders want you to come in. They've offered you a three-year contract. They want you to start filming in September. You won't be on screen till November. And you can't tell anybody. Bear in mind, I can't say anything. <laughs> I know Christy's filming me. And Christy's worried because I start crying. Uh. And she goes, what? I said, it's all right, darling. And Phil says, they've got this character. They want to call Alfie. Now I'm thinking, what? This is pathetic. And I, and anyway, I managed to walk away from Christie so I knew I could have a conversation. So I go somewhere, I went, Phil, what's uh, Alfie? Alfie who? They went, Alfie Moon. I went, oh, that's just stupid. That's just a <laughs> pathetic comedy name. Who's, what? he said, no. They, Tony Jordan's come up with this idea that he wants to recreate the Trotters because Tony Jordan was a big fan of John Sullivan and they were mates. Tony always wanted to create his very own Trotter family within EastEnders. So we've got Alfie, Spencer, of course, was Rodney, and instead of Grandad, we've got Nana Moon. And the first episode we're going to film in September is where Alfie turns up at the square. The whole episode is going to be about you, how you infiltrate the Queen Vic, lie to Peggy, and at the end of half hour, Alfie Moon, by blagging, has taken over the Queen Vic. But here's the thing, Mike. I couldn't tell anybody. Nobody. No. All summer, people say, Shane, what are you up to? Nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're not working, Shane. No, I am doing nothing. No, it's, I'm, uh, knowing I'm about, to, I've just signed a three-year deal. Now, so obviously, I start filming in September. The papers find out. Shane Ritchie has just signed a deal with EastEnders. If there's ever a reason we should never pay our TV license, it's now. Please help me in boycotting Shane Ritchie going to EastEnders. I still have that clipping wow. in my office. But I understood it though, Mike, because if you're on the outside, look, it's the guy that does the Dazed. November 21st, my first episode of Alfie Moon went out. Oh my God, my life for the next three years would never be the same. No. It was incredible. That, that's when the show was pulling in 12, 14, 16 million viewers. Mm. Uh, the following year, Christmas, that episode where, you know, Nana Moon dies in my arms, I think when Cat and Alfie, I mean, it took a whole year for Cat and Alfie to kiss. Every week people would tune in. You know, there were, there were shirts made called Alfie Moon shirts, yeah. which were flappy shirts. My, you know, in 2003, I went to number one in the charts with the Children Needs song. I went to number one in the best-selling uh, Times uh, my autobiography. I think I won, we won a couple of BAFTAs. I, you know, I cleaned up at the soap awards. Here was this bloke, bad skin, divorced, over 40, with bad skin, women's sexiest male. And I would sit there and go, oh, my God. And, and I won best newcomer, Mike. Best newcomer. But <laughs> <laughs> nearly 30 years in. Uh, but I kept that piece of paper that, that, you know, it amounts to nothing. See, what that, what that critic clearly didn't understand is that you knew yeah. these people. Yeah, I knew who Alfie Moon was. Yeah, I know. I, you know, my dad ran clubs. I, I knew landlords. I knew pub landlords. I, you know, I, you know, I, I sung in these clubs. I cleaned up in them from the age of like nine to twelve, cleaning dirty tables. I knew. I knew who EastEnders audience were. So that piece of paper, that piece of paper, I still got. Yeah, God, yeah. 
But Shane, that we've done five things. That's it. Have we? We have. I can't believe it. You have put in Galen. Yeah. You've got the wagon on your front lawn. Yeah. You've got your blue coat. Yeah. Then you've got your um, grease jacket signed. Yeah. And now you've got the little piece of paper from EastEnders. That's the five items for your time capsule. Now, I know I'm going to have to come back to you in about a year's time and do another five. Mate, don't leave it so long. We can do it next week. <laughs> <laughs> you have been the easiest person to do this show with. I've just launched you off and off you went. And that's why I pursued you so so strongly, because I knew you'd be like this. Oh, thank you. I love talking to you, Shane. I really love it. I love your passion and I love your, your honesty about these things. Oh, bless you. That's really nice. Thanks, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and the force of nature that is Shane Ritchie. I hope you had as much fun as I did. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there are plenty available if you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. For more information, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton Stevens, with the music provided by Pass the Peas Music. Now, I know I say all that at the end of every episode, so I'm sorry for repeating myself. It's for any first-time listeners, and to keep the rest of you in suspense as we wait to discover if there are any adverts after the programme is finished. Yeah, did you know that they play adverts after the podcast is over? Sometimes. I mean, not always, but, you know, it's a tense moment. Particularly if you are the maker of the podcast and rely on the ads. Anyway, I won't delay any longer. Good luck, everyone. Right, here goes. Anything your end? No? No. Oh, well, fuck it. I'll get a proper job. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.